are listening to the preaching podcast from the Stanton First Church of God in Stanton, Kentucky, located in the Red River Valley of the Appalachian Mountains. You will hear fervent, spirit-filled, revival preaching from the pulpit of the Stanton First Church of God. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. multi-generational church uh, children youth um, senior saints myself and those older and uh, up-and-coming uh, body of believers you would not believe how many congregations I visit a week in and outside of the Church of God that are not multi-generational uh, most of them are gray-haired, blue-haired, and no hair. And um, there are more disruptions sometimes than, than you would like, but uh, we're an aging group in American Christianity. That's not good. That's not good. Uh, I love the history of the Shakers, not their style of worship, but the reason the Shakers are not around any longer is because they didn't have a generation to come up because of their practices. And uh, we want to be sure to keep passing our faith along, and uh, so good to, to see everyone. I want to take just a moment and bring you greetings um, from Kentucky Ministries. we got good things happening across the state. We just finished three weeks of youth camps. Our camps were back at pre-COVID or larger numbers. Uh, we were very excited about that. We've had, of course, across three camps, we had 20 baptisms. And there were some young people and children that were not baptized. They wanted to wait until they got home to be baptized, and that's perfectly fine. So that doesn't reflect the number of conversions or commitments to Christ, uh, just the number that they had. If you've not been out to the campground, I encourage you to go out to Camp Lion sometime. If you are a Frisbee golfer, we now have a nine-hole Frisbee golf course that is registered nationally. And, um, and listen, I play golf occasionally. Frisbee golf's not my thing, but of course, uh, it seems to be very obvious. Robbie says he has multiple people playing golf out there every, every day and every week. So a lot of good things that are happening there. Uh, we just got back, Fran and I just got back from Tampa, Florida on Wednesday night. We were at the North American Convention of the Church of God. It used to be called the International Camp Meeting of the Church of God. It used to be held in Anderson, now it's held every biennial, uh, which is odd number of years for us around uh, the various places in the United States. This year it was in Tampa. Uh, I would like to say that it was a very different kind of convention. It was more like a big youth convention in being in a, a convention center. Uh, but there was good fellowship and some really, I think, positive things said and positive things that were communicated. I would like to just take a moment and share with you this. Uh, remember that the church is larger than our local fellowship. It's larger than our state. It's larger than our United States. And we are at a crossroads, and you are too locally, 
with culture. How do we minister to our culture? How do we effectively communicate Christ and the teachings of his word and the discipline of holy living in a world that seems to have gone off the rails? Well, imagine multiplying that to the state because in the state of Kentucky, we have various different uh, regions that are represented, very different ideologies, very different life experiences. Then put that on a national level and a world stage. But I'm here to tell you that the Church of God has not abandoned its biblical sense of holiness. We have not abandoned what we believe the Bible teaches. We have not abandoned what we believe God's Word says. We're having some serious dialogue with some of the uh, cultural clashes that have come out. Some of you probably have seen the website, Chaga Affirm. That is not an official Church of God website. That's just a group that's wanting to engage us within the church into the LGBTQA plus one plus one, whatever, we call it the alphabet. The name is confusing, the acronym is confusing. Imagine how confused they are, okay? And yet we have to remember that God has called us to minister. God has called us to live out what his design for man is. So rather than being afraid and not having dialogue, my, my thing is pray for our national leaders, pray for your state leaders, pray for your local leaders that God will enable us to um, continue to press on. And uh, I do not see anywhere in the near future any compromising of our doctrine, any compromising of our faith. I would also uh, say to you that uh, before I get into the word today, uh, church, right now your presence, your support financially, your support volunteering is the most needed activity that you can do personally as well as making these things, um, uh, your needs of the church, um, an item of prayer. It's easy to say, I'll pray for that. And I'll say that in the sermon again, so just be prepared. It's easy to say, I'll pray for that, and we never do. You know? I was in a church one time, and we had a, a bad daycare situation where we terminated a daycare leader, and she took us to equal employment opportunity hearing, a federal charge. And I was a 20, I was a 30 year old pastor, daycare director was about 26. And the board said to us, now Brother Todd and Karen will be praying for y'all as you go to Nashville to that, that hearing. So they send these young people, I was still young then at 30, and we are going to Nashville to meet with the EEOC. And they're not nice people. Equal employment opportunity people are not nice people. If you work for them, I'll pray for you because they're looking for a way to take down, um, back then in the 80s of the church. And uh, so we went and the board said, we'll be praying for you, we'll go to our closet and pray. And I looked at Karen and I said, what they're saying is we're going to our closet to pray that you won't mention our name while you're there. Sometimes that's the way it is in the church. I'll pray for you, that's easy to say, but sometimes it's hard to do. In addition to your prayers, you're needed for the corn festival. You're needed for feeding the homeless. You're needed to be in the house of God to show that you are still engaging actively in worship. And you're needed to verbally go to your pulpit committee and other leaders in the church and say, not only am I praying for you, but how can I serve? How can I serve? God has a pastor for you. It's not an easy process. We have an all-time shortage of ministers, pastors, in the Church of God. It's not just us. It's Baptist, it's Methodist, it's Presbyterian, it's everywhere. 
we have not done a good job of challenging our young people uh, to listen for God to speak. There's a shortage of missionaries to go around the world. I'm just being very honest about this, and we're trying to address some of that locally, nationally, and on the state level. But my heart's prayer is God has someone for you, the person that can come and not be like Pastor Ben, but take the mantle of leadership you have learned to entrust to go to the next level of ministry for this community, for this county, in the state of Kentucky. Fran and I love Kentucky. We've been married 47 years. Um, we have lived as a married couple longer in the state of Kentucky than we have any other state. We came here right out of college. We left for a few years. We've come back. And uh, in fact, we both have lived longer in the state of Kentucky than we did as uh, uh, youth growing up in our home state. So I would just tell you to keep us, um, this is our home. Kentucky's become our home. If there are any questions you want to ask, feel free to see me or invite me back just for a Q&A, and I'll be glad to, to share those things with you. Now let's get on to the Word of God. It's not a 4th of July sermon. I don't apologize for that because I get so free few times to preach. I invite you to open your scriptures this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. God has given me a series of five messages that I believe should be core values of state ministry and core values of Christians, hence core values of believers in the church. One of those core values is a sermon I'll preach at a later time called Rescued People, Rescue People. Figure that out. The one I'm preaching today is called Saved People Serve. Another one that I have that God has given me is that Growing People Change. That is probably the hardest sermon I've ever had to have preached to me. You know what demographic in the church that is the most difficult to get to change of any demographic? Preachers. And preachers will stand in the pulpit and say, now we need to change this, that, the other to, to look at growth. When I stand before your pastors in the state and I say, brothers and sisters, we need to be looking in another direction and maybe change some of the things that we're doing. Now, I'm not talking about worship styles and all this, just thoughts and processes. They look at me like I am an alien from a foreign planet. Preachers can preach about it, but we have a hard time. That's a message God's given me mainly for preachers. And then a sermon that says grace leads to generosity. So if I'm invited back, I'll be sharing these themes because I believe they're vital to church life and they're vital to growth as a Christian and they're vital to growth as we serve together in the church. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, before Jesus in the last period of, of time before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which would be the beginning of the week of his death, he has been teaching about the kingdom of God and that the Son of Man would be leaving. And here we have in this scripture a mother, and I'll get to it in just a moment, who comes to Jesus with a request. And it's a request that is very opposite of what Jesus has been trying to teach for three years on earth. You know, in the Western culture that you and I live in, in the United States of America, there are things that we value. And if you, you don't agree, then I can simply say you're probably wrong because I walk among a lot of us and I see what our values are. 
You know one thing we value in our culture? We value wealth. Things have a price. When I was a young man, a young father, um, VCRs had come out. And there were two different VCR methods. The first one, I know some of you are saying, what's a VCR? Go talk to your grandparents, they'll figure it out for you. You know, the first one was a VCR that was a beta. And they were a little bit cheaper, but the beta is what was used in television broadcast. They had a little higher quality. But then came out the VHS. It cost more. It supposedly was a better unit. Guess which one is still around, if you can find one, and which one went away? The one that was better, that was cheaper, it went away. The one that was not as good, but was said to be as good, that cost more, it's still around. I still have a couple of them at home, believe it or not. Um, you know, that's just the way it is. We value wealth. Look at cars people drive. You know, a Pinto, some of you are saying, what's a Pinto? Go talk to your grandparents. A Pinto or a Volkswagen will get you to the same place that a Beamer will get you to. But which do we value the best? I don't want to ride in a Pinto because they'll explode on you. I get that. But you get my point. The Beamer has got to be a better car. It is. It costs more to fix when it breaks down. Okay? Just be honest with you. You got a Beamer? Great. I, I, I'm about to get an Outback. So now I'm going to be a tree hugger in the future, you know? Uh, Give up my charger for an outback, go figure. I, I don't know what madness that is. Another thing we, we value is specific jobs. Now, if you introduce me as a preacher, and I've been through seven years of school, and I may even have a PhD, which I do not, but I could have a PhD, you would say, well, that's just a preacher. But you bring in someone who's got a doctor before their name, but it's also an MD who went to school, they may not know how to come in out of the rain. But you're going to value that job. Hey, we got a doctor in our church. We got a lawyer in our church. You know? Nobody says, well, we got a teacher in our church. You know what I'm getting at? There are certain things that we place higher values on. Another thing that we place values on is how successful having other people say, you know, now there's a success story. There's a success story. My little grandson, John, we got him a pair of overalls. And he looked really cute. At four years old, he'd run around. He's proud as can be. They belonged to one of his cousins, so they were a little short, but he didn't care. He was running around barefoot, running around. And, you know, they got this pocket here. And uh, I said, John, let me show you what that pocket is. I said, let me show you what rich farmers do. And he said, okay. Well, we'd lived in Florida, and my wife's dad was a dairy inspector, and I went around the dairy barns and met some folks that were very successful in the industry, and they carried a roll of money in that middle pocket. So I gave him a dollar bill. So he'd run up to everybody and say, hey, let me show you what a rich farmer does. And he'd take that dollar bill out, you know. Specific values on being successful in life. Books that we're challenged to read. Books that tell you how to think like a millionaire. Wow. Think and grow rich. Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. That, by the way, is a very good book. Atomic Habits. And I could go on and on and on. The Western culture values what we would call success. But success that we speak about can benefit the kingdom of God, but it is not necessarily 
the success that Jesus speaks about. When our life comes to an end, I've never officiated a funeral that had a U-Haul being pulled behind a hearse. I reminded of a story one time that was told of a man that was a very wealthy oil person had passed away. And the one desire that he had was this one truck that he dearly loved. It was a high-end truck. It was the latest package. He was so proud of that truck that nobody could spend his money until he was buried in that truck. And as they were burying him in the truck and they were lowering the truck with him sitting behind the wheel into the grave, one grave digger said to the other, now man, that's living. <laughs> you see where I'm coming from? Man, that's living. Measure of success. Well, I got some news for you. The measure of success the scripture teaches us is yes, how we use what God has blessed us with, possess, to serve, but there's a greater level of success, and it's called serving. Saved people serve. Pastors, and I teach all my young pastors that will listen, if you don't know how to serve, and if you're not willing to serve, you don't need to be in ministry. Because the role of serving in the church as a pastor is to lead the people of God not only through the word, but by example. An example is serving. Listen to what Jesus had to say. Matthew records this in the 20th chapter. Then the mother of Zebedee's son, now who's Zebedee's sons? Two brothers, sons of lightning, James and John. What a character. Remember that James and John were part of an inner circle that went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. That's just something to keep in the back of your mind. He came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. He said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's a powerful moment. Think about this. Jesus knew what was on the horizon. Jesus knew that he would be going into Jerusalem boldly. He knew this would be his last week in the physical body on this earth. He knew that the cross loomed ahead of him. There was a severe beating that was going to be there. 
There was false accusation. He knew Peter was going to deny him. He knew the disciples were going to disperse. He knew all of that. But he's having this moment when this mother with good intentions, she's not an evil person. She loved Jesus. She loved the work. She obviously was a follower. But she came to him and said, there's just one thing I want to ask you. I want you to elevate my son. Because, see, she was thinking, like so many still think, that the kingdom of God is physical. It is not. The kingdom of God is spiritual. And Jesus knew that he had been talking about a spiritual kingdom that we can live in in the present moment, that we don't have to wait upon. We can live in that kingdom. And this mother comes thinking it's going to be positional, it's going to be on the earth. And she says, Lord, when you have this moment, see, that, many of them thought they were going to overthrow uh, the Romans. They were going to take what was theirs. They were going to have a seat of authority in Jerusalem. And sadly, there are still those who think that today. And Jesus said, even if that were the case, these are not positions that are mine to grip. Hear me, church, there's nothing wrong with ambition unless ambition becomes Lord of your life. Unless you're willing to sacrifice integrity and everything for your ambition. Ambition. As a pastor, I have ambition. I have goals. I have dreams. I have things I'd like to see us do in the state of Kentucky. There are things I'd like to see, you know, the Church of God across America and across the world do. There's good to have ambition. But that ambition should not be set upon anything that focuses on who we are or what we contribute but on our service to the king. And so Jesus looked at the disciples and he said, can you drink from the cup that I drink from? And, oh, yes, we can. Hear me. They had no clue what Jesus was telling them. You know what the cup that Jesus was referring to? It wasn't the communion cup. It was a cup of death. It was a cup of suffering. It was a cup of pain. It was a cup of uncomfortableness. As Caden sang, you know, God on the mountain is still God in the valley. Where do we learn our most important lessons? It's not on the mountain where we're celebrating the victory. It's getting from the valley to the mountain. I have several trees that fell in my yard during the storm while we were away. And my son from Indiana, my middle son, Michael, and his soon-to-be 14-year-old came down to help his mom and I cut these trees up. And Michael and I looked at the one tree that was on the ground and realized it was a bigger tree than we bargained for. And Michael said, Dad, what's our plan? And I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. You know, sometimes it's that valley moment. We know what God wants us to do, but how are we going to get there? That's what Jesus was teaching them. You really don't know what you're asking of me. Now then, the other ten, Judas is still in the mix at this point. I like the way the NIV says it. They became indignant. How dare you go? We were vying for that spot. What makes you so special? What gives your mother the right to ask all of this? And so what very basically happened, Jesus brings them together and says, hey, 
let me teach you something. Greatness in the kingdom of God centers around serving. If you take greatness in the kingdom of God and equate it to worldly greatness, you're going to be lords, you're going to be you know, bishops, you're going to be all of these, I've got more authority than you have. That's not the way it is. And so I want to bring you to this point. Saved people serve others. If you'll take a moment and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10 with me. Because this is the crux of what Jesus is teaching in another passage of Scripture. Jesus has been talking about many different things, and he had just sent out the, the 72, and they were rejoicing because they could heal the sick. They could walk on serpents, and they wouldn't be poisoned. They could drink poison, and they wouldn't die. And Jesus was telling them, you know, that what they needed to be rejoicing in was not what they could do, but the fact that their names are written down in the book of life. And then Jesus begins to teach by a parable, and it's called a parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to read all of this for the sake of time, but it begins in the 25th verse, and it ends at the end, uh, in the 27th verse, or 37th verse. And what Jesus is teaching in this parable is the essence of what serving looks like. Now, let me refresh your memory because I know many of you know the story. First one is this. There was a man that was walking what we would call the Jericho Road. He was walking a distance, and that particular passage of highway was inhabited by bandits. Most people went in groups for safety. Some reason, this gentleman was by himself. Whether he missed the bus, I don't know. Whether he had no friends, I don't know. Only Jesus knew the nature of why he chose to tell this story about serving and about loving your neighbor as yourself. And so in that particular moment, those thieves come and they jump upon him and they beat him and they strip him and they rob him of anything of value and they leave him for dead. And two people come by. One is a Levite, the other is a rabbi. Now let me tell you what I think about the man who'd been beaten. I think the man who'd been beaten was a Jew. If he wasn't a Jew, the story has no merit. And two religious leaders of the Jewish faith come upon the scene of this man laying there bleeding, moaning, bloodied, you know, near death, and they both cross the street. And I'm sure they went like this as they went by. They could not stand the sight. They didn't have the time. I don't know what their issue was, but they abandoned him. And then a third gentleman passes down that road, and he is a Samaritan. This is why I believe that man that was beaten was a Jew. Because a Samaritan was the lowest class of people in any part of the known world that Jesus lived in at that time. They worshiped differently. They had some Jewish heritage. They had Gentile heritage. They were a mixed race of people. Um, you know, if you were a good Jew, you didn't even go through Samaria. That's just the way it was. 
But this Samaritan saw the man, had compassion on him, and served him, and ministered to him. So what can I tell you about the correlation between Jesus talking about servanthood to the 12 after, after um, James and John's mother came? And this passage is this. The first one is serving others is going to cost you something. And it's not just writing a check. I pastor a church out on the West Coast up in the state of Washington, love those people dearly, learned a lot about life through them, worked in government with them, served as a Senate chaplain in the state of Washington. And one of the things that I loved about the church that I pastored is they were generous. But then one of the things that I found that concerned me was this. They were willing to write checks. They weren't always willing to serve. Now you need both. You need check writers, and you need those who will serve, and hopefully they will be one and the same. That's the way God has planned it. This man stopped, first of all, and had compassion upon someone that is broken. So we're going to get to another section here in a minute, so I don't want to overstep that boundary, but just keep that in mind. He had compassion. He didn't ask, what are you doing down there? What are you doing on this road? Don't you know that you should be traveling with a group of people? No, he didn't ask any of those questions. What he did is he saw a need, and he saw what he had, and he said this, I can help meet that need. I have resources that can help meet that need. There is something I personally can do and it wasn't go start a GoFundMe fund. And it wasn't responding on a Facebook text with three praying hands. And it wasn't just saying, I'm sorry you're broken and you're battered and you're bruised and you're beat up, but let me tell you, I will put you on our church's prayer list. Are your toes feeling a little pinched? Mine are. Because saved people may do some of those things, but that's not how they respond first. They say, what do I have and what can I use that I have to help you? When is the last time you didn't just think about someone, but you picked up the phone and you called them to see how they were doing? Now, I'm not pastoring. So I got a lot more freedom here, so I'll just say this. You know what used to bug me the most as a pastor? I mean, it's at the top five of what bugged me as a pastor. Pastor, how's brother or sister Smith? Well, I wanted to say, but I was too holy and humble and pastoral. But I wanted to say, why don't you pick up the phone and call them? You want to know how they are? Call them. You're calling me more than my call. My call's an expectation. Yours is a blessing. Thank you. <laughs> Our pastor, 
Is there anything that family that lost their home needs? Sometimes I think, who lost their home? You see where I'm going with that? I was in Tampa and one of my customers in insurance called or sent me an email and said, we feel like our insurance company and you have abandoned us. We had a fire on June 13th. Nobody's reached out to us. This was like June 21st. And um, I won't tell you what I thought about sending them, but thankfully the Holy Spirit said, slow down. And I carefully thought about the email I sent, and I said, I am so sorry you've had a fire, but nobody has notified me. And I've looked in the record, nobody's filed a claim. And it's improbable that I have the ability to have telegraphic capability to have some type of, um, and I did say it this way, special gifting of the Holy Spirit because they're a holiness group to be able to prophesy and look into the future and see what has happened. I got a very pleasant response back, and it really was. And I apologized for their inconvenience and their tragedy. But they expected these things to happen and nobody knew about it. Save people, serve others, and sometimes serving others cost us something. I heard an old radio preacher preach on this text one time and he said it in his own vernacular, he's from the deep south. And he said, and when the Samaritan took the man to the motel, he gave him what he had in his wallet and he said, hey, if this isn't enough, I'll be back Saturday night to pay you the rest. You see, the Samaritan used clothing, oil, what he had personally, and then took the man to a place that could take care of him till he got better and paid in advance. The second truth that the story teaches us that Jesus wants us to understand about not being people of authority but being servants is serving people may take you outside of your comfort zone. Wow. Serving others may take you outside of your comfort zone. In Acts chapter 10, there's a great, great accounting of Peter who had some struggles. Peter was uptight. I mean, he was raised a Jew. He had some teachings about things he could eat and he couldn't eat and whose house he could go into and whose house he couldn't. And Cornelius, a believer who was an Italian Gentile, sent for Peter. And Peter didn't know he was being sent for, but Peter in his own strength would never have gone to Cornelius' house because Peter, being a Jew, could not enter into a Gentile's residence, even though Cornelius had become a believer. And so God gave Peter this vision of this great tablecloth. And on that tablecloth was everything God had created, that which had been okayed on the Jewish law and forbidden under the Jewish law. And God said, take and eat. And Peter obviously was thinking, I can't do this. 
I can eat this, but I can't eat this, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. And God went on to teach him that everything I have made is for you to use. I'm giving you a paraphrase. Read it in your leisure, not while I'm preaching. And so then the servant sent to Peter on behalf of Cornelius came. And Peter still had to make a decision. Do I go to Cornelius' house? And he did. And he ministered and sent it. I think back in pastoring and places that God has called me. There have been seasons that I have been so outside of my comfort zone. You see, the world that is broken, people that are really floundering in sin, those whose lives are so messed up by sin, they're not always the cleanest, the best, and the easiest to minister to. And some of the things they say and they have done will not cause your hair to stand up, it will cause it to fall out. But what do they need? They don't need to say, it's okay. God loves you. You're going to be okay. They don't need us to dismiss their sin and become an enabler. What they need is someone who says, I am going to commit to walk life with you in the discipline of holiness. One Sunday, I had two young women, one whose family came to church and one who didn't come to church. They almost had clothes on. One was an exotic dancer. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. I had to ask somebody what that meant because I said, hey, we're so glad to have you today. And they told me who she was, and I said, oh. And I said, well, what do you do? She said, I'm an exotic dancer. And I thought, oh, that meant flamingo or something like that. I didn't know that meant dancing naked. The other and I won't call her names for sake of embarrassing her, but she came to know Christ, was a well-known professional wrestler, female wrestler. And I will tell you, all the teenage boys in the church that watched wrestling knew who she was. I had no clue. She came to know Christ. Church was able to walk life with her, get her out of an abusive situation that nearly took the life and that of her daughter. Pastors, a lady that's become one of the most precious family friends we've ever had. In fact, her daughter, one of her daughters and our daughter, are best friends to this day, came to church Easter Sunday. This little Asian lady with two little children, little girls. Her husband didn't come with her. Named Yu Chen. Got to talking to Yu Chen and found out Yu Chen had been in this country since she was 18 years old was a lady who went to her for cosmetology. Yu Chen said to her, she said, I understand about Christmas. She said, I made up light bulbs when I worked in Taiwan. I don't know about the Easter Bunny. The lady getting her hair cut shared with her the gospel. 
that Sunday till this Sunday today, Yuchan and her family has been in the house of the Lord. When I was pastoring Fountain Park, I taught for Foothill, Kentucky River Foothill, on fatherhood and some other initiatives. I came and I taught in your county jail. There are people in this community that I still see walking the streets that still need Jesus. And I shared Christ with them. And I took them to dinner and I took them to lunch. And I'm not making excuse for their sin because they can be delivered and they should be delivered and we shouldn't be giving them money to make it easy for them. I'm not saying that. But I'm telling you, sometimes I just need someone that says, I really do care about you. And let me tell you, Stanton Powell County is not the only county in the United States that has a drug problem. What do you do when a mom comes to you and she says, Brother Jim, I need you to go talk to my daughter. She's in a lesbian relationship. This young girl started having babies when she was 14 out of wedlock. Now some of you will not hear anything beyond what I'm saying next, but hear me out. I looked at the mom and I said, praise God. And the mom looked at me and said, what do you mean? And I said, I visited your daughter in the hospital with blackened eyes and broken arms. I visited with her and she's gone through some horrible moments at the hands of men that you allowed her to bring into your home. She has had more babies that have no idea who their daddy is, and they're struggling. And you're struggling because you allow that. At least in this relationship, she's not going to get pregnant again. And she's not going to get beat up again. This is probably the best relationship she's ever had. And the mom looked at me and went, I can't believe you said that. And I said, Lee, you're not hearing me. You see, hear me, church. Anybody living together unmarried is living in sin. Anyone having sex outside the bounds of marriage to a partner they're married to is living in sin. And whether you're a lesbian or a gay, you're living in sin. It's all the same. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't love them and find ways and ask God to help us by example and by teaching and by not preaching, but walking life with them to say, there's a better way. Because all of these relationships are going to end up in disappointment and sorrow. In the 1980s, I was confronted as a pastor with a thing called AIDS. In the county that we lived in, in Jacksonville, Florida, statistic was one in 10 were going to contract HIV. I shared that in a Wednesday night Bible study. They had about 100 people. I said, which 10 of us don't contract HIV? If we go by statistics. Interesting to watch next fellowship meal. I came back and let them off the hook. 
That's a statistic that doesn't also reflect the way it is in the church. But we need to be prepared for that. What about the young woman who felt like she had no hope but had an abortion? How do we love her? How do we walk through there without judgment? Because again, here in the church, I've never met a true pro-lifer. I've heard people say, I believe that we should not have abortion. Except, and then the exception is, life of the mother in danger, or incest, or rape, or whatever else. All we're saying is, let us set the parameters. Let us set the parameters. How about those who are bound up with pornography? Or those that are bound up enslaved to human sex trafficking because they're trying to make ends meet? These aren't conversations that are comfortable. Learning to serve other people. How about the homeless? I'm not saying providing a meal is not important, but what do we do beyond that? There's a ministry out of Lexington. I get to ensure them. I met them. They come out of uh, sitting there at United Methodist Church. A little Sunday school class. Called Six Treasures. I met with them. I was really impressed. They work with homeless vets, but they never work with more than 12 now at a time. Because they don't just feed them. They help them. If they're sick and they're in the hospital, they visit them. They have them in their home one night a week for dinner and Bible study. Homeless veterans, when they're in the hospital and they get discharged, they don't need to go back to the street. They need a little bit longer care. So they find a place that they can place them and they go take care of them like the Samaritan. They bind their wounds. They invest in them. Their goal is to help them find employment and give them skills. Get them independent. Then they go on to another one. Because they realize they couldn't reach the masses. And I watched this group over the last few years. And these are professional people. These are people who have nice homes. And when we talked about insurance, they weren't concerned about stealing or any of that. They just said, we feel like we need to have something to walk over us so that we can walk in freedom in ministering to these people outside their comfort zone. And finally, serving others equals serving Jesus. The 25th chapter of Matthew talks about judgment. And I love this particular chapter, not because it talks about sheep, sheep and goats, it just talks about when it comes to standing before God for judgment, Yes, yes, knowing Jesus gets you inside the gate. But if you want the best that heaven has to offer, and I don't understand about the seventh heaven that, that Paul talked about. Don't even ask me about that. But I know this. Rewards are based 
on the level of commitment and service to Jesus. I don't want to be just inside the gate. I want to be at the feet of Jesus. I want to march around the throne. I want to sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. I don't want to say, I slipped in. I want the best seat in the house. And it's not mine to earn. It's mine to inherit by serving Jesus. So Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to come like a shepherd who divides his sheep or divides his flock. And there's going to be goats and there's going to be sheep. And the goats won't make it. I'll just tell you that right now. They're different than sheep. Goats are different than sheep. You know, it's just the way it is. Their animal world personality is different. Goats have one set of values. Sheep have another. God never says sacrifice a goat to me. It's sacrifice a lamb to me. That's what the Passover was about. And he said, here's the standard. I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was in prison, and you didn't visit me. And I will say to those, depart from me, and they will be cast into everlasting damnation, basically. But then I will say to the others, the sheep, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they both said, Lord, when did we see you this way? And to those on the left, he said, when you have not done it to the least of these, you've not done it unto me. And he'll say to those on the right, as we stand before him, when you have done it to the least of these, as if you have done it unto me. Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. Bad news for you. The Samaritan woman who had five husbands and lived with a man she was not currently married to, Jesus loved her. The woman who reached out, probably a Gentile touched him with his garment. He loved her. To Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree, he loved him. To, to Matthew, who was worked for the Internal Revenue and was a thief, he loved him. The old song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves a prostitute. Jesus loves a homeless. Jesus loves a veteran. Jesus loves the drug addicted. Jesus loves... Those are caught in sexual sin. Jesus loves all of us. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he went to the cross. And so the job he gives to the church is not to wink at their sin and try to get sociological understanding of their sin or try to make it a disease. What Jesus wants the church to do is individually as believers and collectively as believers serve others.
close with this story. There was a big storm at the ocean. And the morning after the storm, a little boy was walking down the beach. And there were hundreds and hundreds, if not tens of thousands of starfish that had been washed up on the beach. And the little boy would reach down and he would pick up a starfish and he would fling it as far as he could out into the ocean. He'd say, go back and live. And he was going up and down the beach just picking these, you know, starfish up and he was just flinging them back out to the ocean, one after the other. Well, an older man came up to him and said, son, what are you doing? He said, I'm rescuing these starfish. And the man looked at him and said, son, think about this. He said, there are thousands upon thousands and maybe tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of starfish on this beach. You can't rescue them all. And the little boy said to him, that's true. But the ones that I can, what a difference it makes. You can't solve Powell County problems. You can't be the answer to everything that happens in your community. But to those you serve, it makes all the difference. The Lord cares. Stand with me as we pray. Teach us, Lord, how to serve. Help us, Lord, to find joy in serving. Let us not look at the sheer numbers of people who need kind words, who need a friend, who need someone to just sit with them when they are perplexed. What they need is someone who will come and say, your life matters. How can I help? How can I serve? Let us not confuse serving with giving approval to sin. Let us not be told the lie of the devil that if we do this, we are somehow embracing what they do. Lord, let us look to the cross see the simple fact that you saw all of the people who insulted you, who beat you, who were gambling for your roads. You saw the humanity that was greatly oppressed by sin. Those who were doing things that were unspeakable. But your blood flowed that they may find forgiveness and be delivered. You went to the cross for not just one thief who acknowledged you on the cross as the Son of God. You went to the cross for both thieves. And it was up to them what to do. Help us. Help us by serving others. Bring people to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey friend, thanks again for listening. I hope this message was a blessing to you. For more information about our church, go to our website at www.stantonfcog.com. You can also join us on Facebook at Stanton First Church of God. If this message helped you in any way, hit the share button below. Thanks again for listening, and always remember, God loves you, and so do I.